Good morning. Welcome to our video sermon this morning. We had to cancel our services this weekend because of the snowstorm that uh, came into our area. And we trust that you are safe and sound at home. But we wanted to bring the scriptures to you this morning through a video sermon. We, we hope that this will be a help in your family worship uh, as we're not able to join as a body today. We are going to continue our four-part series. This is the fourth and final part of our series in John chapter 1, looking at Jesus, the fullness of God. In John chapter 1, we have looked at Jesus as the incarnate word, Jesus as the rejected creator, Jesus as the light in life, and this week we'll be looking at Jesus as grace and truth. As I mentioned, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter number 1. And let me just read for you verses 14 through 18, which will be the focus of our text, uh, our passage this morning for our sermon. And John says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Lord, take this passage and apply it to our hearts. Wherever we may be, as we hear this, use it to transform us, use it to change us from the inside out. Help us to see your glory in all of its fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're going to wrap up our four-part series this morning. Um, here in our text, we've dealt with some of these things. We've talked about Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling among us. We've talked about those things uh, very detailed. But as you read verse 14 there, you come to a phrase, as John writes, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he says this, and we have seen his glory. I mean, if it wasn't crazy enough that John says the word became flesh and then he lived among us, now John is saying that we have actually seen his glory. And really this, this little phrase, we have seen his glory, makes God so, so amazing to us. He purposed and he planned to show us his glory. God has provided a way for sinful man to behold the glory of Almighty God. He made the impossible become a reality. The incarnation, Jesus becoming human, made it possible for us to see the glory of God. Throughout this text, we've looked at it. John has been describing the word as being equal with. He's equal to God, yet he's distinct from God. So when John says we have seen his glory, he's not only saying that we've seen the glory of the word, but he's actually saying we've, we're seeing, we've seen the glory of God. Jesus reveals the full glory of God. 
as a God who is full of grace and truth. And I have three main points for us to consider as we look at this passage. And they're almost alliterated. Admittedly, alliteration is not always super high on my priority list as I'm preparing a sermon. But my three points this morning are the source, the surprise, and the experience. So in the words of Meatloaf, two out of three ain't bad. Let's look at number one, the source, particularly in verses 14 and, and verses 17 and 18. Notice what verse 14 says. What is the source of this glory? Who is the source of this glory? Okay, um, We have seen his glory. Notice what it says. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. John describes this glory. As he does it, he he also helps us to understand that the source of the glory, the source of this glory, is none other than the Son of God. And this is different. This is a different word than what John uses in verse number twelve when he describes those he gave the right to become children of God. This is a different word here that is used for this, but this is the Son of God. This is the only begotten of God. So we're into language here that other religions don't feel comfortable using. Okay. The Christian faith, as it is based on the scriptures, is different than other religions. The Christian God is not the same God as the God of other religions. So when we, when we get to Jesus in our discussions with other belief systems, with other religious beliefs, there is a wide gap in agreement. There's a disagreement. This is the only begotten Son. And notice what he says, how he describes him, from the Father. The idea is this, from alongside of, or out of the side of the Father. So this Son was with the Father from eternity past, from the beginning of creation, and he has come from the Father on mission to reveal to us God. That's what John's saying here. So who is the source? Well, the source is the only Son of God from the Father. But then notice in verse number 17, for the first time, finally, after 16 verses of John's introduction to his gospel, John gives us the name of the word. Now, we've made those connections. We've connected those dots to see that the word is actually Jesus. But for the first time, John mentions him by name. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So it is Jesus Christ who is the source of this glory. He is the final prophet of God who has come. And he's not just the final prophet, but he is the one true prophet of God. The one that all other prophets point towards. He's the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. He is the prophet that the people were looking for in verse number 21 when they asked John the Baptist, Are you the prophet? Jesus is this one great true prophet of God that has come. This, in contrast, in verse 17, to Moses. Moses was considered the greatest of prophets among the, Jew the Jewish people. And really, this entire text, as John is unfolding this, 
this description of the word is pointing us back to Exodus chapter 33 and 34, where we see Moses going to, the, to Mount Sinai to meet with God, and, and Moses receives the law on the tablets, and he talks with God as a friend would talk with a friend. That's how it's described in that passage. And here's what Moses asked the Lord in verses 33, in, in Exodus 33, verse 18. He asked the Lord, please show me your glory. Now here in John, this is what John is saying. We have seen the glory of God. And in Exodus chapter 33, verses 20 through 23, God agrees to this. And here's what he says to Moses. But, but he said, but God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me which you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen because of the, the brightness of God's glory. And we know, if you know that passage, as Moses comes down from the mount, his face is shining so brightly that the people can't even look on him, so they put a veil over his face. Now, in John chapter 1, John is saying that someone greater than Moses has come. Someone who has actually seen all of God's glory. Someone who has actually talked with God face to face as he was with God at the beginning at creation. And he was sent from his side. Jesus Christ. And this is what John confirms for us in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John boldly proclaims here that Jesus is in fact God in human form. The only way that we can see God is through the only God who has made him known. Now some of your translations might read the only Son rather than the only God. But it appears correct to read it as the only God who is at the Father's side. But regardless of what word is used there, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is God and Jesus is our only source of knowing God. We aren't waiting for anyone else. Jesus displays to us divine glory. He gives it to us. He reveals it to us. Now, you might be saying, especially if this is not something that you believe, well, of course John is going to say this. Of course he's going to write this because he's a disciple of Jesus. I mean, it's like a Penn State alumnus saying that Penn State is the best university. Like, of course he's biased towards it. But this isn't how John is arguing the point. John's not just arguing from this biased Point of view. He's not just saying, I think you should believe this because this has been my experience. And John has, 
John has deep experience with this. He's walked with Jesus. He's talked with Jesus. He's ministered with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 17, John, along with Peter and James, are there on the mount as Jesus is transfigured before them. And they, they see this, this, this uh, they experience this thing that no one else has ever experienced. This glory of God. In, in Christ as Jesus' face shines like the sun. But John's telling us this truth. He's arguing this, not just from the basis of his experience, but notice the plural language here. He says, we have seen. Now that we most definitely could be referring to other disciples that had walked and talked with Jesus. Could be referring to Peter and James as they were there on the mount as Jesus was transfigured before them. Certainly so. But John's argument is, look, others have seen this glory as well. As Jesus has revealed it in the fullness of his life, in the fullness of his death. But I want to be careful here because... This is not glory that is simply seen with the physical eye. It's not just about those who were there with Jesus and they got to witness this glory. But John is, is going deeper. There's a spiritual eye of the heart that sees this glory. I mean, think about it. There were many people that saw Jesus physically but missed his glory. Missed the glory of God that he was revealing. This is a spiritual glory. But also, this is a glory that John says, look, we've examined this. We have seen, the word seen here, we have closely looked at, we have observed, we have gazed upon. So the idea is not like we, we quickly glanced and we think that's what we're seeing with Jesus, and it might be, but we're not really sure. Jesus, or John is actually saying, look, we've observed this, we've studied it, we've we, we've, we've tested it. And not just me, but many others. So John's not arguing that he's one of the few that have been privileged enough to see this. But he's actually saying many have seen this glory. And the only explanation of what we see in the person of Jesus Christ is that this man, Jesus, possesses all of the glory of God. This is what John invites you to see in this passage. John says, look, I, I, I invite you to look for yourself. And my heart, as I stand here and give you this word, is that like John, John's heart, my heart is the same, that you would know God through Jesus Christ. But listen, no one is asking you to take my word for it. We, we aren't saying here at Covington Baptist Church that you should believe this because our church teaches it. But we are saying that this is what God's word reveals. And we invite you to examine Jesus with an open mind. And we are confident that when you do, you will find Jesus as the sole source for knowing God personally. Jesus Christ is the source to knowing God. This glory that is being revealed is found in the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. 
We looked at the source. Number two, we want to look at the surprise. Think about how the word has been described in verses 1 through 13. If you, if you have a moment, you can even stop, stop the video right here and reread through the first 13 verses. We see God as an awesomely powerful God, the creator of all things. We see him as the supreme light and wisdom of the world, God who is sovereign over all things and all people. He's the source and sustainer of all life. Now, if you, I'm going to give you an illustration using uh, a pretty popular but old movie, The Wizard of Oz. Remember the scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy and her friends g first go to see the wizard. That very first time they go and they walk down this long hallway, this long corridor, and the whole way the lion is shaking and he's, he's holding his tail and he's terrified. And before they ever see the wizard, the lion covers his eyes and he says, Tell me when it's over. And he's terrified. And then once they see the great and powerful Oz, you, you, you can YouTube the scene if you want to. He is terrifying to them. They're, they're shaking. They're falling over at times because they're so afraid. And they see themselves far beneath the wizard who's supposed to be this godlike figure. They see themselves far below. And once it's determined what they came for, we get exactly, in that scene, we get exactly the kind of response that you would think that you would get or that we would expect, right? Oz, the great and powerful, tells them that if they want something, then they will have to do something. If they want to go home, if they want uh, a brain, a heart, and courage, they are going to have to do something in order to earn this. They're going to have to bring the broom of the wicked witch of the east or the west. The wicked witch of the west. So whatever they're going to get, they're going to have to earn. And if they don't do it, then they will get nothing. Some of us, some of us have a filter on our belief about God that whenever we hear God, whenever we hear his name, we think judge, we think terrifying, we think ready to punish. We, 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 if we could picture that scene on the Wizard of Oz, that's what we think about God. We think of a God who waits to see if we're going to be good or bad, and then he decides how much hardship or how much blessing he's going to give us. If we were writing this verse verse 14, we would say something like this. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of fear and holiness. I mean, the first thought that we would have of seeing God in all of his glory is to run like the lion, but this is not what John writes. There is a surprising twist to this story. And boy, is it so much better than what L. Frank Baum writes for us in The Wizard of Oz. 
L. Frank Baum is the author of The Wizard of Oz, if you didn't know that. And as a side note, uh, if you read the book, it's actually a bunch more darker than what we see in the movie. Anyway, there's a surprising twist in this story. This glorious God is full of grace and truth. Here we have the description of this God, and it's not what we expect. And there's so much to unpack in this short little phrase, full of grace and truth. So let me just jump in. First, it is full of. That is, it's filled to capacity. It's saturated with. Right? So if you're looking for God, you aren't shortchanged when you look to Jesus. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's full of the glory of God. When we see Jesus, we see God. But it's also full of grace and truth. Here we see divine revelation to us of who God is. It's summed up in two words, grace and truth. It's, it's like when Jesus says in Matthew 22 that the law can be summed up in two commands, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, what? On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. All the law can be summed up in these two commands. Here, okay, understanding who God is can be summed up in these two words, grace and truth. Grace to describe him as a God of love, truth to describe his faithfulness to himself and to his covenant people. So, so John, as he reveals this though, and this is important to understand, because so many people think that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. This surprise, as I'm calling it, I mean, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise because John is not revealing to for, John's not revealing to us a new God. It's the same God of the Old Testament. He is the God of the New Testament, and we see these things. Uh, we see God as a God of grace and truth in uh, Exodus chapter 34 and verse six. In Psalm 25, verse 10, let me read that for you. Psalm 25, 10 says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So Jesus isn't showing us a new God, but showing us God in fullness. We see his graciousness in dealing with women and children and sinners and, and the outcasts. We see his truth in calling out sin and hypocrisy and speaking on judgment and hell. We see these things in the life and ministry of Jesus. Grace and truth. The third thing I want to draw our attention to in this phrase, full of grace and truth, is I want us to notice that it doesn't say he's full of grace or truth. But he's full of grace and truth. Both at the same time, not one and then the other, not one or the other, 
but grace and truth simultaneously. Right? And why is this important? And here's why it's important. Because all grace without truth really cheapens grace. If, if, all we, if we have no truth involved, if we have no law and, and, and the, the idea of sin and judgment that goes along with that, and all we have is grace, it cheapens grace because it takes away the cost of truth. If there's no punishment for my sin, then how wonderful is grace? Right? Because we're not deserving of judgment. Grace is costly because of truth. Grace is costly because of truth, and, and grace is not truth. On, on the other end of that, all truth without grace just leaves us under judgment. We have no hope. We're, we're judged and bound to our sin, and so that scene, that picture in The Wizard of Oz then becomes more realistic if it's all truth, truth without grace. And the only thing we want to do is run from God. Jesus reveals for us a God who is both grace and truth at the same time. And so I must still see myself as a sinner deserving of God's judgment. But guess what? Because of grace, I don't have to run from him. In fact, I can run toward him. I can go right to him. I can run toward him because at the cross of Jesus, the beauty of grace and truth collide to give us the capstone of God's glory. It's at the cross where we see truth as sin demands justice and judgment for sin is paid with Jesus' own flesh as he's beaten, as the nails pierce his hands and his feet, as the crown of thorns is placed on his head, as he hangs on the cross until he dies. We see truth at the cross. At the same time, we see grace as God's judgment is poured out on the one who doesn't deserve it, as it's poured out on his son, Jesus. Who never deserved pastor, former pastor, I guess now, theologian John Piper, he writes this about this phrase, full of grace and truth. The glory of the Son of God is full of graciousness toward us sinners without compromising God's truth. The glory of God is full of grace and truth. This morning, do you see his see this glory in Jesus? Do you see this glory in Jesus? Or are you just going along based on what your parents say or what your spouse believes or what your friend thinks, right? Have you experienced the glory of God's salvation for yourself? Jesus is the source. If we want to know God, we go to him. We had this surprise revelation that this God is, as we see his glory, that Jesus reveals it's full of grace and truth. The third point I want to touch on in our time together is the experience. We can know all the right things. 
We can say all the right words. You might be nodding in agreement with me as I, as I talk this morning and share some of these things out of, out of John 1. But the real question for us, the real question for you, have you experienced this grace and truth in your own life? Two things under the experience, and we'll be finished. Number one, it's a personal experience. John is writing to people that have never physically seen Jesus, okay? So that's our first indication that this glory is not just a physical thing. John's calling people to see the glory of God in Christ. But Jesus is not there anymore. Jesus is not physically alive on the earth anymore. But he understands that this is something that people must see for themselves spiritually. And we see this glory through the Holy Spirit revealing it to us, opening the, the eyes of our hearts. And I want to say to you today that grace and truth are available for you right now. Notice verse 18, where it says, The only Son, the only God, where is Jesus? Who is at the Father's side. Literally in the bosom of the Father, at the side of the Father. That tells us this. Jesus is alive today. He is still revealing God to us. And all people who repent of their sin and, and, and turn to Jesus, as the scriptures say, are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. Let me read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. As Paul writes and he's talking to believers, he says this, we all with unveiled face, so the veil is gone, beholding the glory of the Lord, as we see Christ, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that opens up and reveals to us the glory of God. And as believers, as we see the glory of God in Christ, we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God. And we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is a personal experience. Leading into, using that verse to lead into our, our final point we want to touch on here is that this experience is transformational. Receiving this grace must be personal, but it must be transformational. In other words, part of the idea of receiving and experiencing this, 
that this, this glorious grace and truth of the gospel is that you own it for yourself and it's transforming your life. In verse 16, John writes this, And from his fullness, from the fullness of Jesus, we have all, talking about we who are born again, in verse number 12, that are born of God, we have all received grace upon grace. It's from Jesus' fullness that we are complete. It's from his fullness that grace is now flowing through us. This is not merely the idea of grace piled high, although it has an element of that. It's grace upon grace upon grace. But it's not just grace piled high, but the idea here is that this is a continually fresh grace. A fresh grace that we, we enjoy and we experience each and every day. And what Christ has done for us now frees us to experience a life that is totally different than what we've experienced before. We are now called to be people of grace and truth. Friends, as we consider these things, don't cheapen the glory of God here. Our hearts are quick to turn anything into works. So don't hear this as, God wants me to be full of grace and truth, and so I will do it because it's pleasing to him. Instead, hear this as, I've seen the truth of God's law, and I've seen my sin in my life, and I've seen my standing before God that I'm deserving of judgment. But, but I have received this wonderful grace of Jesus. I have seen this, I, I've received this grace of God through Jesus' life and death and resurrection in my place. And in light of this, in light of this, now I am wanting to demonstrate to this to others. Do you see the difference? We're not trying to earn God's favor. When we do that, we cheapen the grace of God. But as we understand what we have received and what we experience in the cross in our behalf, then out of that should flow grace and truth. Side notes. I'm just thinking about this. If we're not concerned about truth in our own life, if we're not concerned about what God says and, and following what Jesus tells us in his commands, if we're not concerned about that, and we're not concerned or we're not, we're not living out grace towards others, on a regular basis, if that's not a regular part of our life, if, if really those two elements we, we, we just don't really live by, can, can I just give us a warning? We need, we need a warning to stop and consider whether or not we have personally experienced 
grace and truth in our life. Please, please, don't hang your, your eternal security hat, so to speak, on a decision that you made many years ago that is not transforming your life. Nowhere in Scripture is the basis of our salvation on a prayer that we prayed many, many years ago. Everywhere that we look, we are to examine our hearts. We are to, we are to search ourselves and see what we believe here and now. How are we living? Is your life one that is full of grace and truth, that's growing in grace and truth. Oh, how different, how different our homes would be behind closed doors if we were people of grace and truth. How refreshing this body of believers would be if we met people in their need with grace and truth. You see, too often churches are full of one or the other. Churches are full of grace without truth, which oftentimes leads to license. Sin is regulated to the sidelines. The call for holiness is a rarity within that, that, that church body. Because it's all about grace. It's all about God's love. God loves everyone. And God doesn't care about sin and holiness. Churches, on the other hand, that are full of truth without grace leads to legalism. And so the standard in a church like that is to live up to the law. And oftentimes it is the law of man, not even the law of God. And when we don't live up to that, what's judgment is released, condemnation is cast, love is absent. And so a Christ-centered church ought to be full of both grace and truth. Which is why we want to be a church that strives to keep the gospel at the center. And at the center of the gospel, you find Jesus at the cross. Where you see the pinnacle of grace and truth. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we pray that we would see your glory. Open the eyes of our hearts to see the fullness of who you are. I thank you that you are a God of both grace and truth, a God of love and righteousness and holiness. I thank you that we have hope in Jesus because we can't, we can't escape your judgment on our own. We can't earn our way out of breaking your law. We deserve to be judged, but we are met with love. We are met with mercy and grace at the cross. Jesus is our only hope. And we are so thankful for that this morning. And so we pray all of these things in his precious name. Amen.